Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Lowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Adam Lawrence, Head of Player Development at Manchester United between the U13s and U16s. Adam, welcome to the show. Uh, great to speak to you, Connor, and uh, thanks for having us. It's my pleasure. Um, Adam, as we begin with every guest that comes on the show, we begin by asking, what is their earliest football memory? Earliest football memory? Wow. I think... Um... So uh, we were we were a household of uh, four four brothers, so four boys. Um, so I've got one older brother, two younger. So earliest football memory would just be uh, playing end to end in the hallway, um, breaking a lot of furniture, uh, breaking a lot of bones, a lot of fights. Uh, but yeah, very much um, in the house playing football when you shouldn't be. A uh, lot of noise, a lot of action. Uh, so they would be like my first memories, really, just with my brothers and, and my dad. So, yeah, <laughs> nothing too exciting goes on in most households. And as one can detect, uh, quite the strong South London accent. And of course, like, I mean, it, it's been spoken to the Nile and back in terms of the amount of players that have come through South London. But there's actually been quite a pedigree of coaches too. Lee Johnson, who's been on this podcast, Michael Beale, Scott Parker. Why do you think that as such? Yeah, I think, uh, listen, in terms of, first of all, South London, um, they're very diverse areas and, and parts of the world, you know, just in terms of one of the things that I love about London and particularly South London growing up there is uh, the different cultures, uh, the different ethnicities. Um, uh, and you've just got that very wide mixed and, and different types of people, which I've always found really interesting. So. Uh, growing up in the borough of Southwark, as an example, you know, you've got um, heavily sort of uh, Afro-Caribbean people living there, um, Asian, uh, just a real nice mix of people. And obviously with that then, particularly when you talk about football and uh, people playing the sport, you get uh, diff different types of players with different types of qualities. Uh, and And obviously because they are, unfortunately really deprived areas of the country um you, you get a lot of you know players playing out on the streets or uh playing less uh, let's say more unstructured styles of football because they maybe can't afford to play for grassroots teams or uh play have the parental support to play for professional clubs etc um so i think you get a lot of that sort of unstructured street football type activity going on um, so, yeah, I just think the diversity of that part of the world, uh, the love of the game from kids who play, um, kids playing out and in more sort of like chaotic environments definitely sort of lend itself to creating those types of players, you know? Of course. And it was also in South London where you got your first taste of coaching, really, through um, the Millwall Foundation. I've heard you in a different podcast before speaking about it and it seemed like quite the arduous apprenticeship in terms of not skipping any steps, being involved at all levels there, accumulating all the hours. Yeah, I think, listen, uh, like, like every lad, when you're young and you love football and you love playing it and you, you're watching match of the day and all the professional players and the teams, you've got that ambition of playing football at the highest level you can and you, you dream of that. Uh, for the small minority of people who love the sport, that's achievable. Uh, for the rest of them, like myself, you have to take that sort of other avenue. Um, and I think for me, particularly, um, I was playing at non-league level at the time at Carshorton Athletic. And uh, I think I just got to a point where I knew realistically that 
I wasn't going to be earning huge sums of money out of the game from a playing capacity. So uh, naturally start thinking, I love the game. So what other avenues can I go down? So um, a, a mate of mine, Anthony Bailey, uh, got me on a coaching course at Mill Community Skiing. Um, just, just really basic level one, uh, go along, have a week of playing football. Um, and from that, the, the lady on the who tutored the course, Louise Newstead, um, invited me into Millwall Community Scheme to start coaching and just doing some uh, casual um, work, really. So I thought, great, I'm doing my A-levels. I can earn a little bit of money on the side. It's working with kids. It's football. I really enjoy it. Um, so I just sort of went from there. So, yeah, very much when you start, if you would have said to me then that I'd be doing what? I'm doing now and still in the profession, I wouldn't have believed it. Um, but it's like anything, you try something, you get a feel for it, you start enjoying it and it starts to take you in different directions and stuff. So, um, yeah, very much my first first tastings of, of coaching were local housing estates, uh, soccer schools, coaching in schools, boys, girls, mixed abilities, um, just, just real diverse experiences again. Um, but yeah, obviously looking back on it now, really enjoyed it. And it was the fundamentals for me in terms of coaching and engaging with young people and that. So a real education for me, yeah. That's what I was about to say. It's, uh, it must have been quite the education and experiential learning in terms of just trial and error. Just getting knee deep straight away into it. Yeah, definitely. And I think when you're, for those that have coached in those environments, when you're working with, you know, sometimes 30 plus kids, um, you're working in on facilities that, uh, you know, small areas that are not really conducive to delivering um, high level coaching sessions, if you want to call them that, or the, or perfect environment. Um, not not enough equipment. You know, some kids sometimes when you're at those PE lessons or you're in them sessions don't really like football. Um, so I guess you're always trying to think of how can you engage with the individual and try and maximize their time with you in the session or on a on a holiday so um yeah yeah i think it's like any industry ain't it like sometimes just throwing yourself into it and getting your hands dirty and getting into the thick of it is the best way of learning so i think that alongside having um some real good mentors and support around me at the time were crucial really looking back yeah and it seems to be as well, like we we're just speaking off air, you know, a reoccurring theme in your own career is not skipping steps because I believe it was back in 2016, you and a few mates, you did your own study visit to clubs in Rio de Janeiro, Sao Paulo and Buenos Aires, which is quite the change of for working, from working in Bourbonsey with Millwall. I mean, how did that trip impact your coaching? Yeah, I think uh, so a, a good friend of mine, Dominic Caschiato, who's currently working in in the States, um, we we played played together, obviously, in England. And uh, we, we just always had a sort of interest in Argentinian football, Brazilian, that sort of like South American influence. Um, at the time, which is obviously still the case now, uh, South America export a huge amount, number of players into the professional game. Um so we were sort of interested from a one a coaching side, but also just I guess from a lifestyle side, um, and and the culture of the countries really and how that influenced football. So, uh, we we were very proactive about it. So obviously saved up a bit of money, 
I tried to use as many contacts as we had to try and uh, try and find a way into some of the clubs there, um, visit some different organisations and stuff. So, yeah, looking back now again, we spent, I think it was 10 days in each country. Obviously saw some sites along the way as well, um, but a real, just a real valuable learning experience, really. So when you talk about CPD and learning, um, not, not all of that is done through formal qualifications. So I think if you're really passionate about improving yourself and developing yourself, you, you sort of make your own CPD and you're really proactive about what, what you can go and look at. Um, so, yeah, we, we obviously saw some fascinating stuff out there. Um, and I'm sure there's stuff, even if I'm sure there's stuff that's sort of impacted on how I am as a person, how I am a coach and, and the players that I work with today. So, yeah, definitely beneficial again, looking back. And was there necessarily any one thing or any one method of coaching perhaps that you observed during that trip that you brought back and implemented into your own environment? Yeah, like first of all, one of the things that stands out was uh, they were very fanatical about the game. So not just passionate and a love about it, you know, I, I just felt, you know, there was that fanatical feel amongst the fans, the people connected to the clubs. Um, almost like, uh, I know we can sort of overemphasize this type of stuff, but almost like it was a religion to them and uh, meant that much as well. And you, you could see, you could definitely see in terms of like a love for the ball, um, you know, ball mastery, individual ability on the ball, etc. You could definitely see that that was something that was emphasized within the clubs. Um, and I guess we were fortunate to visit a favela out there as well, but you could see, I'm not saying South London is the favelas, but there's definitely some similarities there in terms of like unstructured football again, um, players spending a lot of time with the ball, playing with older players, playing with younger players, so mixed stages and abilities again. Um, so, so that definitely sort of screened out to us. And and the level the level across the clubs that we visited uh, was high. We thought was very high at the time. Um, just in terms of the depth of quality, looking at the individual players, etc. So um, I remember being at Charlton at the time and obviously no disrespect to Charlton, uh, who do a fantastic job and uh, are renowned for developing players. But I would say where we would maybe have three or four that you thought had a realistic chance of developing into the first team in those age groups, there would be at a club like Fluminense, for example, there would be seven, eight, nine, ten. Um, so yeah, I, I think in England, what what you sort of uh, one of the differences in in the structure of it is, I think the talent in England is more spread out amongst clubs. When I look at some of the clubs on the continent or countries on the continent or in South America, for instance, I think the talent is more concentrated at certain clubs and they have a, a, a bigger depth. Um, so, yeah, that, that was like some of our observations, you know. You know what, though? It's making use of the environment that you have availability to because obviously in South London, we speak a lot about cages and that unstructured, structured piece. Brazil, I remember, was there myself for the 2019 Cup America. I remember jet lagged, got in one morning, just happened to be walking across our Panama, Copacabana Beach, absolutely beautiful. Then all of a sudden, go down and see all these kids wearing Flamengo T-shirts. I'm like, what's going on here? Go down, it turned out it was the under 10 academy team, 50 plus <laughs> kids on the beach. Having spoken to a coach and a few of the parents, realizing it was the first of two sessions, the second session to be held at the academy later on that day. So 
I thought that was a really unique piece and it hit me hard as to how you can actually make most of the talent density at your own disposal. But Charlton, that's a really interesting one because, of course, you put a lot of those learnings into place. I mean, you were there for nine years where, you know, from the outset, amidst a lot of economic turmoil, promotions, relegations, even player and staff turnover, Academy kept on churning out gems and the graduation rate was quite high from players such as Joe Gomez, Joe Aribo, Adamola Luckman. What were the few reasons behind this? Yeah, I think um, I think one of the things that Charlton we obviously used to our advantage was, uh, well, this is circumstantial really, but because there was a quite a bit of turmoil amongst you know, the owners, the the strategy of the club, uh, the vision, there was a lot of change at the top end. Um, it's sort of uh, one thing that never changed or we had a lot of consistency was within the academy. So obviously, first and foremost, uh, led and drove by Steve Avery, the academy manager. Um, but we had a lot of consistency in terms of certain members of staff being there for a consistent time. I think what that does obviously help with in terms of having a clear way of doing things. Um, you know, whether that's your, your playing style, your philosophy, your game model, uh, linking to your coaching curriculum, etc. Um, ensuring that things are staged and aged appropriate throughout the academy. Um, so, so we were quite clear with that. Uh, Recruitment-wise, you know, obviously, uh, I think Charlton's in a, a really good catchment area, although it's in a, a Obviously, one of the most competitive recruitment and, and the size of the clubs that are in London. Uh, but it's quite a good area just in terms of being close enough to inner London. And then also in Kent, where there's a lot of like structured grassroots football, etc. So um, quite as well, just in terms of the leagues going on there. Yeah. Um, and then also tapping into some of that uh, unidentified talent in London, you know, uh, so so the inner inner parts of it. So, I think we had quite a good balance between the two, um, and I think what players could see at Charlton was that there's a there was a pathway throughout the academy, and into the professional game, um, and when other players start seeing players ahead of them getting those opportunities and making the careers at the top end of the game. It obviously makes it easier for you to for them to relate to them. Um, so then suddenly players can start to see the pathway and really believe in it. Uh, and you, you you basically retain players that could potentially you could have potentially have lost if there wasn't that clear clear way. But we did, you know, you mentioned a couple of them there. There the players that came into the environment later. So Joe Aribo, obviously now at Southampton, Adamola Lookman. Um, Atalanta, uh, I remember that there's been a few real good examples of that. Anthony Dixdeal, now at Middlesbrough. Um, so players that have come in later. So I think that's where the talent ID and the coach's understanding of what players may look like today and then also what they could look like further down the line, you know, when you pick up those players later on in the system. Um, and then obviously the players, Esri Conson, now at Aston Villa, uh, Carlin Grant, West Brom, Joe Gomez, Liverpool, uh, even Jeremy Sarmiento, Brighton, Laji Ramazami, doing really well at Almira, uh, who started earlier on in the academy. So just uh, 
having an open mind, I think when you're thinking about players and talent ID, is that there may be some that progress through your system from a young age that you're able to influence techni technically, tactically, uh, within the different areas uh, of their game. But then also understanding that talent develops at different rates and you're going to get players that come in later into the system um, that have a lot of potential because maybe they've not been in the environments before. So that's what we found with a few of those players. Um, and then you're basically trying to place them in the environment where they're going to maximise their potential. And then because they're, you know, obviously uh, fantastic kids and they want to do well, they end up making real strides in a short space of time. So, um, so yeah, they're, they're probably some of the things that we try to concentrate on, you know. The interesting piece for me there that you brought up, Adam, is actually the talent ID, what the future player looks like. Now, was that a series of formal or informal discussions between the recruitment staff and players? Or recruitment staff and coaches? Yeah, probably probably a little bit of both because uh, na naturally you have your succession planning meetings where the key members within the club sort of sit down and look at players within age groups and where you're strong, areas where you might want to recruit into. Um, but then also I think you've always got to be open-minded to uh, players that might just catch your eye. So I've heard, you know, people talk about, uh, so, so Joe Aribo, we recruited through playing Nike Academy when when it was there, similar to Anthony Dixtiel. So just being open-minded to playing those sort of different types of academies that might be working with those players later on in the system, um, kinetic, etc. Uh, I remember Adamola, you know, Adamola was... Uh, um, did I hear you know different comments from people in terms of trying to claim him? But Adamola was literally an end of season friendly against the London FA. Um, people more interested about where they were going on their summer holidays and sitting on the side watching the game as opposed to looking at any individual. Uh, and he just lit the game up. Um, and then from that, obviously, you can see straight away that he's got talent and that he's got a lot of potential. Um, and within two weeks, uh, he was a scholar at the club and talking more about his future and stuff. So, yeah, I guess some of that has got to be formal in terms of what players, how you're measuring players, player profiles, positional profiles throughout the age groups, um, what you feel they may look like throughout the academy. But I think you've always got to be open minded and ready for the one that's just going to show you something different. Um, and that that stuff is not formal. You know, that's just... I think a coach's understanding and a staff member's understanding of what talent ID can look like. Um, and I guess like you're trying to develop some patterns in players where each player is different and they're going to take their own journey. But I think if you're getting the right experiences, the longer that you're in the game and you start to see patterns and develop an understanding of what players may look like at certain times, and most importantly, trying to realise their and see their maximal potential as opposed to what they just look like at that time as well. Mm. And of course, there's like a brand equity too to being a graduate from the Charlton Academy. It's almost like a seal of approval to go from the academy to first team at that club. I mean, from your own experience, how would you know exactly when a player is ready to make that transition from academy to first team level? Yeah, that's hard one, and it? it's a bit like the magic, uh, magic question, I guess. But I think, um, I think sometimes you don't always know. But 
you know that the player needs to be given the opportunity. So I think the player reaches a level of performance or a stage in their development where you feel that they need to be exposed or they need to have the opportunity to have a uh, have the opportunity to show their ability to the first team staff and at that level. I think what was I think this was this was the bit that I alluded to before that was quite circumstantial where because the club didn't have a lot of money or couldn't go out and spend X amount on players. Sometimes it was just through circumstance that players were training with the first team or involved in the first team squad. And then if you get someone like a Joe Aribo go in there and, and do really well, then first team manager obviously takes a liking to that player. First team staff see something in them. And then next thing you know, they've played like 25 to 30 games. So you get a player who originally is maybe making up numbers in training as opposed to like really being looked at. But you know that they've got the potential to play at that level. And then obviously once they then showcase their talent, because obviously some of it has got, a lot of it has got to be down to the player performing and showing the personality and the ability to do that. Um, then obviously the rest take care of itself. So some of it can just be through circumstance and luck and, Listen, as developers, I think your relationships with the first team uh, directors of football um, have got. A, you've got to try and develop those relationships. So, if and when a player is ready, you can at least express your opinion and try and push it in a way that you can. And then, obviously, it's, it's up to the first team staff and the people above to try and embrace that. You know, but we had we had some positive uh, relationships within the academy as well. It actually transitions nicely to my next question, which focuses on the head of coaching role you had at Charlton, which is obviously there's a lot of moving parts there to manage between staff, support staff, player and a broader ecosystem. In your own experience, how have you found getting that balance right between the individual development of the coach and the individual development of the player? Because as we spoke about and alluded to the beginning of your own journey, you kind of do need that safe space to try and fail, albeit we're speaking about the professional level here. Yes, um, you know, doing a head of coaching role at a club like uh, Charlton at the time is um, it's very broad. It's, it's definitely one of the things that I learned. You know, when you look at the role, uh, you're thinking about the players, uh, the coaches, uh, the staff, the support staff. You know, parents, education, etc., CPD. Um, so if you're not careful in that type of role, you can go in so many different directions and get not not get much done. So what what I always try to do was try to focus my work in periods and on things that I feel I could have a real big influence on. So instead of trying to control too much or involve myself in in too many things, uh, you know, trying to be real specific with it. So, for instance, if um, if there if there was a period where we were hiring three or four uh, part-time coaches, as, as an example, I would really try and focus on that as a key thing in terms of making sure that the right people came into the building that were right for the players and the age groups that they were working with uh, and, and go through a real sort of like thorough process with that in terms of bringing people in. Um, if it was sort of like working with individual coaches that needed support in certain areas, you know, that could be through... Uh, their communication skills or their coaching style within training sessions, uh, sort of like filming sessions, reviewing sessions, looking at clips, etc., uh, match day behaviour, 
that type of stuff, um, then obviously that that would be a priority. Um, but you definitely, I think, where the biggest shift was from a coaching side was you have to understand that your impact on the players is going to come through the coaches, the staff and the programme, as opposed to you working maybe intimately with them every day. Uh, so, I, again, the head of coaching role is a bit, a bit, it's, it's, it's a bit different at all clubs because even as a head of coaching at Charlton, I was coaching um, with the 18s and 23s at the time throughout my working week. But then on top of that, there was a lot of work done around individual coaches supporting them, um, what the programme looks like, the playing philosophy, the coaching curriculum, etc. So, yeah, very broad, but again, looking back, um, you know, very beneficial in terms of my education and, and definitely learned some some real key skills from it. You know. And being a head of coaching and no doubt liaison with other head of coaching all over the place, all over the globe, I mean, how would you say the best head of coaches separate themselves from others? Yeah, the best, uh, the best head of coach, the best coach developers. Um, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess to be a real skilled coach developer, you've got to be really passionate about developing people and developing staff. Uh, I think you, you've got to be a real good people's person in terms of having time for people, uh, building relationships, building rapport, um, and getting an understanding with people as well. And then I guess it's no different to a coach working with players. You've got to identify what key strengths coaches or members of staff have and how best to utilise them within your programme. Um, so, yeah, very similar to players in terms of identifying strengths in players and then trying to chip away at some of the areas that might help them take the next level to their game. Very similar to coaches in terms of trying to trying to be very strengths-based um, and then trying to support them with areas that they feel they need improving in. But I think even now the head of coaching role is still quite young and is still quite broad within professional clubs and clubs use them in different ways. Uh, and, and one of the things that was brilliant for me at the time is through the uh, Premier League EHOC course, so the Elite Head of Coach Development, Head of Coaching course, um, you were surrounded by people that were in a similar, the same role to you at their clubs. So it was a great opportunity to share best practice, check and challenge each other, uh, learn from what they were doing. Um, so, so that was really valuable as well at the time. Um, but yeah, definitely to sum up an answer to your question would just be, uh, be being a real people's person, really identifying with the coaches, building relationships with the staff, um, and then sort of aligning that to your coaching programme and your syllabus, really. And then obviously, Adam, I mean, moving on from London to Manchester, I mean, can you take me back to the day where you got that call from United? Yeah, uh, yeah, obviously, um, uh, I think uh, I'd got to the time at, at Charlton and sort of in the head of coaching role, not, not at Charlton, at the club, just in the role, just where I wanted to transition back into a day-to-day coaching role back on the grass and uh, I actually there was a role that came up um, at United which is basically the role that I'm in now um, that 
came out and I applied and, and interviewed for. So at the time, um, I didn't actually get the job initially. Uh, so I guess it's a good lesson just in terms of trying to leave a best, uh, a good impression, um, regardless of the outcome. But basically, the club said that there there may be some potential other opportunities um, in terms of roles came, coming up. So naturally, I thought they were just uh, trying to trying to put a good spin on some bad news and stuff. So uh, yeah, I just thought we'd see how it goes. But shortly afterwards, uh, club club contacted me just around uh, an under-16 role that were coming up. Um, and obviously, because I'd gone through the interview process, uh, that, that I could obviously go into the role and stuff. So when when they did contact me and it was happening and that, obviously, it was, uh, yeah, fantastic. And, um, you know, you, you like to be humble and not get carried away of yourself and stuff. But when a club of that size with the history and the tradition within the academy of developing players... Uh, gives you an opportunity to work for him. It's obviously, uh, I guess you feel really proud to have got to that stage, and um, yeah, obviously delighted and stuff. So um, yeah, on one hand, was was obviously gutted to be leaving Charlton because uh, have been fantastic for me. A lot of good people there, uh, so many positive uh, memories of the place. But um, also really excited about making the move to United, and then also just from a change in terms of moving up here, in terms of moving to Manchester as well. So when you're brought up on a council estate in South London, it's a little bit different to, um, yeah, moving up here and having this different experience and that. But uh, yeah, so far, so good. So great. EastEnders to Coronation Street. <laughs> yeah, something like that. <laughs> and I mean, entering the doors there at United, I mean, you've been there nearly two years, if not a bit more. What stand out? What stood out to you as unique regarding the culture of development when you entered those doors? Yeah, I think. Listen, when you when you come into Carrotton, uh, I'd I'd been to Carrotton uh, a couple of times as opposition, but when you come and uh, it's like your first day at work, and you're coming into the building and you're being shown around everywhere, and you've obviously got the academy on the same site as the first team, and all all the people sort of working there and the players and stuff, and uh. Yeah, listen, this is amazing. Um, but I think once you start any job and you start working with young people, you just uh, you just realise you're there for the same reasons that you was at Charlton, at Millwall, or anywhere else. Really, you know, you're you're working with young young players and people that have got this aspiration of trying to uh, develop their passion and dream of becoming professional footballers and uh, at different levels of the game. Um, and you're there to sort of support them with that within the programme and then also try and support them uh, to, to become good people and, and good, solid young people as well and give them those experiences along the way. Um, so, yeah, I think I think the thing that definitely hit me straight away was just the, the family feel and the friendliness around the environment. So the pastoral care and the feeling of the club is I think is really special, you know. So it it doesn't the the biggest compliment I could pay it is it didn't feel like a big club once you were in it and you were speaking to people and meeting people. So obviously it feels like a big club in a lot of ways, in the way that it should do. But in terms of like the care and the support and the friendliness around the place, um 
you know, just just a real nice feel about it from from the first day I came through the doors, really. So, obviously, really um, really thankful for that, you know, in terms of how uh, friendly the people were and how welcome they made me feel. And obviously, I mean, you're well adapted now, but the process of transitioning from academy to pro can be quite stressful for many young players, especially so at United, where the failure rate or quote unquote failure rate is a lot higher and the success rate is a lot lower. How do you work with players to manage against that and kind of manage that desire? Yeah, I think what you've always got to try and be with the players is is honest. And when you're communicating to players, parents, um, not just obviously myself, but I guess the messages from the top, top come from uh, uh, Nick Cox, uh, Darren Fletcher, director of football, etc. When they're sitting down and meeting with players, uh, when we have, you know, parent education workshops, etc. Um, is that, li- listen, you, you can't be in an academy and say that becoming a professional footballer is not achievable because that's why they're set up and it is, you know. So who am I to say to any young player here that uh, you, have, you haven't got the potential or the ability to progress into Man United's first team because it is achievable, but what you're always trying to stress um, when you're having these discussions is that it is a small percentage of players that get those opportunities. But what we're going to do along the way is we're going to give you a real um, high-level programme with a lot of varied experiences across your years here. And if it does work out at this club, then brilliant. If not, then we feel you're in a real good opportunity to obviously then find some level of the game where you can continue your football journey. Um, and we're going to try and give you some real valuable sort of like life experiences along the way. So I guess you're trying to strike that fine balance of not dampening anyone's dream or aspirations, but always trying to educate people in terms of the realisms of the industry and what could be potentially happening further down the line. So I think the longer you're in the game and the more discussions you have with players, parents, etc., you you're more comfortable having them honest and open discussions. Um, But then, you know, players have also got to have that belief and back themselves that they can play at the highest levels as well. So just just trying to strike the balance between that one. And you spoke briefly earlier on about how at Charlton, it's very important for players to see that pathway and the intimacy of it. Had Neil Banfield on the podcast actually a few weeks ago and he spoke well to it too about before having the likes of Mikel Arteta, Patrick Vieira, Jack Wiltshire down in the ranks mentoring these young players. I know United have done something quite similar with the UEFA B cohort, quite a cohort, in fact, of Bruno Fernandes, Juan Matt in the past, Harry Maguire and Phil Jones helping out coaching some of the youth teams. Yes, yeah, that was uh, last season, which was um, fantastic, you know, obviously fantastic for the players to be uh, surrounded by players of of that calibre and obviously the experiences they've had um, and obviously for the coaches and the staff as well, you know, to try and tap into some of, um, you know, their experiences, you know, uh, obviously Phil and Harry being developed in England, but, you know, talking to Juan about his journey at Real Madrid and obviously Bruno at Sporting as well. So, uh, yeah, obviously for the staff was great as well. Um, and, and for the players to, I guess take some of the messages from them in terms of what it's like to be a first-team player at, at this club and 
uh, the, the bits that will help them get to the next part of their journey. Uh, but, you know, this, this club's quite unique in terms of you might just have like Brian Robson just popping in to chat to a group of players or Patrice Evra coming in for the day and doing some work with the players and stuff. So I think uh, when you work at a club of this size with that sort of history, and that is quite quite special and it's hard to replicate at many other clubs, really, where you can tap into that sort of, uh, yeah, high, high level of player in the history of the club. And that. so it's, it's something that we obviously celebrate and we try and use to our advantage to try and head, educate and support the players that we've got in the programme at this moment in time as well. Of course, and I mean, like, to close up the Manchester United chapter, I mean, someone as versed in new developments as yourself, I mean, you're quite a self-starter. You're taking initiative there to go on various study trips and abroad. So I could imagine going into any environment there would have been little surprise for you. So my question is, going into United and being there since the past few years, what's the biggest lesson you've took away in terms of how the club constantly produces players? Uh, yeah, I think, listen, first and foremost, although in the Northwest, in terms of recruitment for players, has become very competitive uh, with obviously uh, Manchester City, Liverpool, Everton, and also a lot of the, the clubs in the sort of North Northwest area. I would liken it a lot to London in terms of the geography. There's probably a similar amount of clubs in the same sort of area as well. Um, so obviously the recruitment for players, even for a club of this size, uh, becomes quite aggressive. Um, and then in terms of, I think, what we've seen here in the time that I've been here, uh, one of the lessons would just be the sort of, the, the tradition within the programme in terms of things that, uh, you know, the staff and the coaches feel have been really important over the course of time in terms of developing the players. And then you're always trying to sort of like evolve your programme as well. So I guess it's like trying to find that balance between what whichever club you're at or what, whichever programme you have is what are the key things that you feel are really important um, and that have been a real difference for you in the past and then how you're going to try and evolve and add to your programme sort of going forward in the future. So I guess a, an example of that is uh, United have, have always had a real uh, big in, indoor programme sort of in the win winter months. So basically in the winter months here, we invite different clubs in. Um, we play sort of like indoor indoor football, different uh, sizes of pitches, uh, different um, numbers of players. Uh, so it's quite sort of like creative and, and, and just that different sort of feel to it. So that would be an example of something that the club has always tried to include in the programme that we would always have an element of going forward, you know? So, uh, yeah, that they would be sort of individual aspects of it. And the, the club has always been massive on expression, creativity, uh, players playing without fear, uh, playing in a sort of attractive and entertaining style. So they're, they're always some of the key things that you've got in the forefront of your mind when you're devising, you know, uh, training sessions and, work with individual players and what you're trying to encourage them to do. So, um, yeah, I guess they would be some of the key things. We spoke about, I mean, at the start of this podcast about how you were at Charlton trying to get ahead of Talent ID. I mean, what one eye now in a future game, what advice would you have for coaches to get ahead? I think for coaches, uh, yes, it's, 
it's always hard to look in terms of where the game's going. But if you look at what what's happening in in I guess this last stage and periods of the game is I think players are having to be definitely more tactical, tactically flexible, just in terms of um, we're seeing dif- different systems, different uh, movements of players. Uh, you know, five years ago, you wouldn't see a fullback roll into the middle of the pitch to play as a an, as an extra midfield player, uh, as an example. So, I think there's going to be more of an emphasis on players having to do different things in different areas of the pitch. Um, so more rounded in terms of their qualities to a higher level. If you look at the real high levels of the game, um, obviously te- technically now there's a lot of sort of uh, position specific work being done individual uh, specific work being done as well compared to when I first started coaching. So now we do a lot of work with individual players, uh, small groups, etc. Not Not just technically and tactically, but obviously in other areas of the game. So if we feel that a player would benefit from uh, additional physical work, then he would go and do additional physical work in a different way, whereas other players might just be doing might be on on the pitch. So I think it's just making your programme as individual specific as possible whilst also fitting in the remits of football being a team sport. So just uh, understanding what that looks like and just having that diversity within your programme as well. Um, Obviously, now we're looking at uh, physically players at the top level. Uh, I use Bruno Fernandes as an example. He played over... Over 70 games in the last calendar year, in the last season. So if you're looking at players now in terms of being available for managers at the top level and clubs that are playing in these big competitions, um, that, that has a massive effect and influence as well. So uh, what does that look like in terms of your programme underneath? So how many players, how many games are uh, your players being exposed to? Uh, what type of games are they uh, do they play double game weekends? Do they play two full games in a week? How often? You know, so just trying to, I guess, layer your program so it gets it closer to what it looks like towards the end game as well. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. I've gone off in a few different directions, but I guess just a few things there that's sort of on my, my mind in terms of where the game has gone and what it sort of looks like at the top level at the moment, you know. You may have gone off in a few different directions there at the end, but no, I mean, Adam, I have to thank you first and foremost for coming on the show. And I think the reoccurring theme that a lot of people can take from your own journey is that, you know, it pays well to be patient in the medium to long term. Uh, You're someone who hasn't certainly skipped any steps. And I hope a lot of people listening will take inspiration from listening to your story today. No, no, thanks, Connor. And, uh, uh, I think the biggest thing that I look look back on and, and look at the time that I spent coaching, you know, I've been in the game for 19 years and it, it obviously took me, I think what you've got to do is allow yourself time and space to develop and hone your skills to get to the stage where you feel you're, you're competent enough. So when you do get put in, you know, a so-called elite environment or you're working with players at that sort of elite end, uh, that you're able to stand the task really because... I think it's like any industry or environment you're put in if you jump into anything too soon and you've not spent enough time developing your skills, your knowledge um, and learning through error, trial and error, uh, then you might not end up having the career that you want. So uh, 
listen, there'll be definitely better people than me in my industry that can do it in a shorter space of time. But my advice to anyone would always be just to make sure that you're, you're showing that sort of time to develop yourself as an individual within your profession, as opposed to jumping into something too soon. And obviously we spoke about at the start, but you can't be sort of uh, learning through the experience. So just coach as much as you can, learning through the experience of what you're doing. Um, and most importantly, just be there for the players and try and do your work through them. And uh, hopefully then the rest will just happen naturally, you know. Fantastic. Adam, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks, Connor. Appreciate it. Thank you.